Hello, listeners, and welcome to Skylit, the Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host, Steph Karp. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. We're open for in-store browsing and curbside pickup, and you can always shop at our store online at skylightbooks.com. Just check out our website to stay up to date with our current in-store shopping policies. Today, I'm excited to welcome Susanna Phillips-Newbury to discuss her book, Speculative City, Art, Real Estate, and the Making of Global Los Angeles. Susanna's in conversation today with Cole Akers. Susanna Phillips-Newbury is Associate Professor of Art History at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and Vice Chair of the Board of Trustees of the Nevada Humanities Council. Her scholarship focuses on the social history of 20th and 21st century art, photography and architecture, urban studies, and economic geography. Her first book, The Speculative City, was published in 2021 by the University of Minnesota Press. Other recent publications include The Art of Witnessing in the edited volume Aesthetics of Gentrification and anti-sitcom video art in the microgenre. Cole Akers is senior curator and special projects manager at The Glass House, a site of the National Trust for Historic Preservation in New Canaan, Connecticut. He's organized site-responsive exhibitions, performances, and programs, including projects with David Hart, Jenny C. Jones, Jimmy Robert, Elaine Lustig-Cohen, and Gerard and Kelly with the LA Dance Project. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Art Forum, Freeze, The Wall Street Journal, and Vice, among other publications. He previously held positions at the Hammer Museum, Los Angeles, and David's Werner in New York. Welcome, Susanna and Cole. I'm so happy to have you both. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Susanna, did you want to start us off with a reading? Yeah, I'd love to. Art on fire. The photograph is pure speculation. Like a composite or a storyboard, its image shows a shift of scene. In the foreground, two wood frame houses, one small, the salt box, the other a derelict mansion, the castle, sit perched on a small rise, penned off from the dirt and debris that surround them by a chain link fence. The image is crisp and well composed. A white 1960s car aligns with the ridge line at lower left, chain link leading across the construction site toward a half hidden oak tree and telephone pole on the right. Signs of life in an otherwise apocalyptic space. The houses sit starkly outlined against a gradient background, one that fades from white to a rich gray as the eye moves up, as if signaling the edge of the image is the edge of its own world. They have been left for dead. The castle, 1968, looks south and west across the land, the level former nexus of 19th century Los Angeles. The scene captured by Julius Shulman has indeed been evacuated, cleared of people, the working class black, brown, indigenous and Anglo community that made up its most recent population, cleared of buildings for urban renewal, except for the designated historical cultural monuments, salt box and castle buildings cleared even of pavement. Not a trace of sky lingers over the old scene. The buildings were soon to be raised on truck beds and packed two miles north off the bank of a dry river planned as Heritage Square, a displaced vestige of Victorian LA. Within a year, they too would vanish during restoration, burnt down in a fire set by young people in search of a place to party as part of a history of forgetting. Despite its mournful capture of endings, the photograph also sees the future. The viewer looks both at and through the scene. 
Behind the wood frame buildings, a behemoth rises, a gridded rectangular modern structure, its beams and floor line scaffolding turned design, flat and inexpressive against the Queen Anne vernacular. At the top, on a black background, the words Union Bank run centered across its surface, its text naming the image as if announcing its future. Just above, light clouds reappear, anchoring the scene in the geography of the everyday, caught in a moment of passing. Completed that same year by Albert C. Martin and Associates, local adherence to international style modernism, it was the first skyscraper to be built in downtown Los Angeles. It was also an aspirational symbol of things to come, the implementation of an efficient, gleaming new city on a hill. Backed by private capital, secured by corporate multinationals and sleek cultural institutions, the 1969 vision of LA's urban future sought to rewrite the city's identity speculatively as one of streamlined global power. Hi, Susie. Hey, Cole. I, um, I first just wanted to say thank you so much for inviting me to uh, join you for this, this chat. Uh, and, you know, I'm just so struck, you know, the book is so brilliant. And, you know, as we've heard just now, the, um, just even your prose is just so crisp and beautifully written. Um, so congratulations on such a beautiful project. Thank um, you I so should, much. Yeah, I, I want to just you know, maybe share with listeners that I had the privilege um, of meeting you and learning about your work when you were in the very early uh, research stages for your dissertation, which ultimately became the basis uh, for the book. Um, and I want to ask, uh, as a trained art historian, um, what made you choose Los Angeles, its art scene, its real estate market as the subject for your work, you know, especially as someone coming from the Northeast where you were based uh, before you came to LA? I remember uh, when we first met Cole, we got coffee at Cafecito on Hoover. Um, and I have to admit, I was so nervous to meet you because the person who introduced us mentioned that we were doing similar work. And I thought, oh shit, here's this like LA person who actually knows about these things. And I have no clue. I'm just starting out. And it was really the start of a, a fantastic friendship um, and, and um, conversation that's gone on for over 10 years. So I'm really thankful for it. Um, what made me choose LA as a subject of work uh, had a lot to do with the character of the art scene that I encountered uh, when I first relocated to Los Angeles from New Haven, where I was working on my doctoral studies at Yale um, in 2011. What seemed really exceptional about the art scene in comparison to New York or elsewhere was that it seemed incredibly collaborative, um, young, uh, friendly, and most importantly, based in pedagogy. For a long time, there was a sort of rap on LA and its artists that they weren't really able to devote their full time to making art in a serious way, like people in New York or Europe could. Um, instead, they had to teach for a living. And of course, teaching is often understood as a devalued practice uh, within sort of the higher end of the cultural sector. 
But what I liked about it was it meant that artists were used to relating to lots of different kinds of people. They were open to influence, especially from younger generations, whether they turned out to be fine artists or not. Um, and they were extremely well-versed in the life of the city. So for those reasons, LA became a really interesting counterpoint to what I had learned thus far as an art historian and as a student of contemporary art elsewhere. Um, another reason that I chose LA uh, was that I am from Brooklyn, New York. I went to college in Ohio. My life until that point had really been based on the East Coast um, and in geographic places in the US and elsewhere that had been developed um, and fully built out a long time earlier than LA had. And so when I began researching this project, which began with the photographs by the artist Lewis Baltz discussed in chapter two, I was naively just shocked by what California looked like. It, to me, it looked like nothing. It looked like uh, strip malls and it looked like stucco. Um, it looked really confusing. And when I came to LA on vacation and I was driving or was driven around in six lane traffic, of course, my first thought was, this is, this is horrible. How do you ever connect with anyone? Um, and so arriving in LA and meeting artists like I just described really helped dispel that myth and spur my curiosity even further. Um, Another reason was that I was in my late 20s. I wanted to move somewhere new. Um, and it seemed like a great time simply to move somewhere warm and diverse and uh, politically progressive. And uh, for all those reasons, LA became where I decided to start this new chapter of my life, but also where I decided to situate my research. Well, selfishly, I'm really glad you made that decision, um, not only for this wonderful book, but um, certainly for all the wonderful things that you bring to Los Angeles and the West Coast. Um, your book really persuasively synthesizes art historical analysis with social history and what you call a forensic approach to bureaucratic and financial documents, you know, the records that um, document real estate transactions. Um, how did you conceive of the methodology for the book and how did you negotiate you know, the sort of dis seemingly disparate audiences um, that the book seems addressed to on the one hand both art historians, but then on the other, you know, scholars of urban history? So as, as uh, listeners might have heard in the introduction, it's a bit of a curious book. It's about works of art. It's also about urban development and urban planning. And when I began this project, I would tell people that, and they would say, art and real estate, like how do those go together? I've never heard of such a thing. To me, it seemed quite normal um, because as I said, I grew up in a big cultural city, New York, and saw the ways in which across various different levels in media, the existence of a strong cultural sector, especially including fine artists, seemed to correlate with change at the urban structural level of the neighborhood quite rapidly. Um, one of the reasons that I took the approach that I did, which does marry traditional art historical analysis of works of art, intentions of artists, and the implications of formal choices in creating imagery or objects for a viewer, and a more um, traditional background for urban studies, which involves examining everything from tax policies to building permits to city council meeting minutes was that I wanted to be able to substantiate the work that I do as a describer of visual phenomenon with 
concrete evidence that could be used in a productive way by everyone from a public servant to um, a fine artist in understanding the roles that art plays in the life of the city. We talk about uh, method, and I think for some listeners that seems like a sort of academic pursuit and perhaps kind of boring. Um, and I usually find methodology pretty boring as well, but um, you use the word forensic, which is one that I use to describe my own method as well. I think listeners might be familiar with the idea of forensics, most importantly from like TV shows like CSI. And that understanding of forensics, an investigator uses um, the after effects of an event in concrete observable details to reconstruct the activity to, led, to lead to that event. So it's a kind of uh, reverse engineering of outcome. However, within art history and also importantly within geography and especially within uh, global studies of um, the geography of conflict, forensics tends to mean something else. In my case, forensics as a term derives from the work of the architect and theorist A.L. Weitzman, who teaches at University College in London. He describes forensics as uh, techniques and technologies by which things are interpreted, presented, and mediated into political agency. What he means is that in a similar way to my first definition, you can take something like a building, a building in the middle of the desert with no surrounds, it's just a warehouse. And by observing the building, tracing the activities of movement into and out of the building, digging up permits and other forms of bureaucratic documentation that seem negligible, like 20 pounds of sand were poured on this site at that day, you can uncover the potentially political significance of what seems to otherwise be an ordinary, banal, and irrelevant outcropping on the land. Weizmann uses this in his work specifically to talk about um, the politics of the built environment um, and transfers of power uh, in the Middle East, especially between Israel and Palestine, where building itself is an incredibly controversial political project that aligns in some ways um, with, with apartheid and genocide. In my case, what I'm thinking of in terms of forensics is as a theory by which artists and historians can understand nonlinear historical contingencies that frame art within ethics of agency. So I'm looking specifically at how we can trace together these banal pieces of information to understand art, not just as the product of someone's own intent, not just as something as, that delights and fascinates the viewer, but something that's intricately tied into the real world and whose making and exhibition and afterlife um, at a point of sale or in a collection or elsewhere um, has ramifications for how the world operates. Well, that is certainly no small feat, um, <laughs> you know, especially with, you know, thinking about these sort of banal, as you put it, like banal details. Um, uh, I inferred from the acknowledgement section of your book that the research to, cons to construct this, this argument um, entailed some research trips that, you know, one might say were um, unusual uh, in some ways. And I wonder if you could share some of those stories of your research. For example, you, you wrote something about um, having to track down telephone books, I think, in an ar archive in Orange County, but you, you, you can tell yeah. better, of course. 
Yeah, I was at the Orange County Archives, which are at the county seat. Um, and this is an example of how these sort of um, unconventional modes of research, especially for art history, can turn up great surprises. Um, municipal archives are places where the history of people in location live. Um, and the, uh, the responsibility of municipal archives is to exhaustively and comprehensively preserve artifacts of the past um, as, uh, as again, um, a political statement, we can't forget our past, but also to um, be comprehensive in case someone comes later and says, oh my God, this tissue like solves the, solves the mystery. There's genetic evidence in this tissue, we've solved the crime. Um, in this case, I was down at the Orange County Archives and looking through yellow pages from the 1950s um, in order to track down the address of the mortuary that Louis Baltz's father operated in Costa Mesa during his childhood. Um, and perhaps it wasn't necessary to, necess to do that. I mean, there had been reference to the fact that his dad was a mortuary owner and it's really an incidental detail in the book. But part of my, um, my method, my approach, is to actually deal with the physical objects that constitute that history. And so in paging through um, those literal pages with that pulpy paper that I think people today don't really remember that used to just arrive like a brick on your doorstep, I did in some sense get a texture of what it was like to live in that emerging community before sprawl became the emblematic um, pattern in Orange County. I got a sense of it as a place of communities that were interconnected and to a certain extent somewhat vernacular um, and, and local, which is something that I think is hard to find. Um, I also spent a lot of time at LA's building and permits office with a lot of contractors just trying to coordinate numbers for a parcel that is being built but hadn't existed 60 years ago. Um, I spent a lot of time at the Getty Research Institute, which is extremely cold. So I brought my winter jacket. Um, and my favorite thing, which I think I also mentioned, is that um, I just would go down some rabbit holes. So I was looking at uh, LA Times articles about the LA County Fair in the 60s, which actually had a big presence for design and home building um, to display sort of innovations in that industry. And I found lots of file photographs of like the best pig at the county fair and um, someone's cherry pie and things like that. So um, there is a way in which you can become sort of nervy about all of these things um, and just enjoy yourself while also on this longer term pursuit. It's, it's little things that help you feel connected to the project as it goes on. Uh, the book uh, is organized around a series of compelling case studies um, that reframe you know, familiar works of art through the lens of, you know, these various um, uh, episodes in urban development. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about a few of those. Um, you know, you've mentioned Louis Baltz now um, a few times, um, and I wonder if you could speak about um, the body of work that you look at specifically and then um, you know, as you know, my deep interest in um, uh, the city of Irvine and specifically William Pereira, if you could talk about, you know, how these two, um, you know, moments in Southern California history uh, inform each other. In some ways, the pairing of a work of art with an innovation in real estate from around the same period um, is a formal conceit of the book. You do 13 years of research and you have to figure out in what way it can become manageable and how you can create a theme for each chunk of information that the reader will be able to follow. But in other ways, pairing the work of art with the real estate um, came from a 
decision on my part to do a form of art history that really considers the content and the reverberate, cultural reverberation of the content of works of art. For those less familiar with the discipline, um, art history can refer to the decisions made by the artist in composing an object or a photograph, like, oh, why'd you put that line here? Or does that potato sack really need to slope that way or hang from that pole? Um, but another approach is to talk about what happens after those decisions have been made, not just the fact that you chose to take a photograph, for example, of an industrial park warehouse in Irvine, as Lewis Baltz did, but where, what that warehouse is about, how it was designed, where it comes from. And then furthermore, what having framed that object or entity like a warehouse tells you about the, the future of that place. Um, in terms of Irvine, I was looking at a beautiful suite of photographs created by the artist in 1974 and presented in an artist book, which was a relatively new concept at the time called New Industrial Parks of Irvine, California. The suite is of 50 odd, very highly composed black and white photographs of um, cropped sections of low slung warehouses. So an example could be um, a tightly cropped frame that shows the edges of two garage doors with horizontal patterning on those doors for when they roll up, symmetrical um, um, pipes running down the middle, um, a highly textured uh, asphalt so that you can see kind of each kernel in the ground, um, and then an attention to surface detail that allows you to see each crack in the stucco and perhaps if it had just been raining where moisture had accumulated. They are incredibly beautiful images because what they do is hold the viewer's attention for a long period of time, considering minute details and how they feed aesthetically the information that the brain knows. And I was interested in that approach to art making, again, one that's highly premised on the look of things and the fact that it makes you pause over um, the sort of insignificant. Because when I thought about it, Irvine was uh, a brand new master planned city, very novel at the time. And yet it looks, I think to many people at the time and, and maybe to an outsider today, just incredibly repetitive. Everything looks the same. It's all white stucco and Spanish tiles. And as I learned through my research, that was all planned. Even the height of bushes against a concrete fence uh, separating a division from a major road was directed from um, the planning committee. I thought about that in terms of Baltz's work, that here he's choosing a formal method to reflect the close scrutinizing attention to the construction of a visual world that's designed essentially to be ignored as you pass along on a street back to your home or to school. Um, and I found that just um, really fascinating that there could be such scrutiny applied to such sort of nominal spaces. When I looked at the development of the industrial park, however, which of course was the subject of the work, I found too that those had been designed to be basically as anonymous as possible and flexible in their architecture and their interior space because they were designed for a new kind of corporate work practice. And that is of the high-tech lab, a place where people come, they're inside, they're working together, they're working with new machines, new materials, new ideas, um, and then they leave and it's, and it's a little bit secret in the way that high tech does need to be secret in order to be proprietary. 
Um, I furthermore learned that in uh, Irvine at the time, the city planners had um, anticipated that they needed to build this tech sector in order to make Irvine an economically as well as culturally viable place um, surrounded, surrounding the university that was put in at the same time. Um, and one of the major industries that those warehouses um, housed was the production of semiconductors and other little tiny bits of high tech that in effect allow for people to communicate electronically. So sub notice under the radar without a visual appearance, um, but allow communication to happen. And so on formal subject content and theoretical levels, it seemed that these photographs and the uh, real estate solution that they depicted actually contained a lot of information that collapsed uh, what it looks like, what's happening under the surface, and what the plan is to create that region as a dynamic node um, in the future of the state and also um, of the regional economy. I think you'd also asked about Pereira. Um, Pereira, as an architect, um, was in Los Angeles for a long time, especially starting in the 30s. He trained at USC uh, with a number of emigres from Europe uh, around the time of World War II, including the famous mall developer, Victor Gruen, um, whose work is all over the Los Angeles uh, area. Um, and he won the series of commissions in the 50s for a number of important public works projects, including the renovation of Bunker Hill downtown, where the Disney Concert Hall and MoCA and the Broad are now, um, the design, the master plan for LAX, and also the design for the UC Irvine campus um, and for the city of Irvine. His work as an architect at this point was specifically about the movement of people across facades behind which activity happens. So he's also very much interested in issues of circulation, of how um, information and the growth and production of information needs um, sort of clandestine places to develop. Um, but he's also uh, influenced by another major Hollywood industry, which is the film industry. Um, he had worked uh, as a set designer and cinematographer in the past. And that interest in creating these kinds of false fronts for activity that happens both in front of and behind the scenes theoretically influences his design, um, which is very heavily ornamental on the outside and kind of um, empty and flexible on the inside. Um, another architect that you um, discuss at length uh, is Frank Gehry. And certainly, you know, an architect that, that you know, many listeners know well for these um, very high-profile buildings um, around the world. And yet, you look at um, an earlier period in his career, um, in which he is working very closely uh, with artists and institutions. Um, and I wonder if you could speak about um, some of those projects, um, you know, particularly in light of um, the how do I put it, uh, in, in certainly in light of the, 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 the turbulent developments um, that are ongoing um, at those same institutions today in LA. Yeah, so Gary is best known in Los Angeles for his Disney Concert Hall, which is the sort of fantastic titanium clad, um, cloud-like looking building downtown. Um, he's also currently working on a billion plus dollar mixed use development across the street from the concert hall. 
um, and the uh, renovation of the Los Angeles River into a 26 mile park going from San Pedro uh, through downtown. He's exceptionally prominent. His practice is everywhere in, in Los Angeles. But as you say, at an earlier point in his career, before he had made this move to what people call sculpturalism, which is to create a notably designed megastructure on the outside that stands apart from the skyline, he had been involved and interested in some of the same things that Pereira was. He trained with Victor Gruen, the mall developer. Um, he was at USC making a lot of, making friends with a lot of uh, artists from an earlier generation, like the Ferris artists and others. And through those friendships, getting commissions to build his first structures for those artists, like their studios and their homes. His earliest vernacular style was, I argue, derived from those artists' work. At the time in Los Angeles, there was a sort of dual uh, impetus in artistic creation. One was to embrace technology and to use the workings of technological manufacture to influence the output of art, um, both in terms of its materials and its processes, breaking down each step, creating prototypes, and eventually modeling something bigger. Um, but the other dual, the other influence was um, really about the fact that art is an ongoing process. Art doesn't begin when you have an idea and it doesn't end, you know, when you make your bubblegum sculpture. Art is a series of decisions enacted over time. A lot of the artists that Gary is working with um, worked out of their garages or their houses or other slightly interior unfinished buildings that are part of the Southern California vernacular. And so when Gary began to design homes for them, he took that vernacular of process, of lack of finish and of raw materials, such as two by fours and braces and, um, you know, sort of pipes and infrastructure that would be exposed and began to make bespoke buildings that used those as a visual signature. He also designed his own home in Santa Monica on this way, tearing back um, the drywall and showing all kinds of interior operations of the building. Um, that became his early signature in a way to align his own practice as an architect. And architecture is famously a practice that is um, divided between its commercial uh, orientation, you have to build this thing for a client, and its attempts at artistry, ideas and visual presentations that go beyond the functional. He uh, replicates this sort of unfinished look um, at designs for uh, an exhibition at LACMA in 1968 of the work of Billy L. Bengston for um, a series of museums and other projects he works on in the 1970s. And finally, it comes to its kind of highest point when he's commissioned to uh, renovate two police garages in Little Tokyo into what is now the Geffen Contemporary. He chose in that renovation project, which was the first outpost of MOCA before its main building was completed, to reveal all of the infrastructure of the interior of the building to kind of paint and clad uh, iron beams inside two thirds of the way up to make it seem like uh, an unfinished industrial space that instead was actually highly designed because he had developed this language as the language of art, always in process, never quite finished, a little rough around the edges, um, which you know curiously derives from the practical spaces in which artists who often don't have a lot of money manage to make their work. I wonder if we could switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about 
Um, in the book, you uh, mentioned that the um, that your book is is born in some ways um, in the wake of the two thousand eight global global credit crisis. Um, you know, in which contemporary art emerges as a financial asset to fuel private wealth and urban gentrification. I wonder if you could speak about that moment and how it inflects um, your research and the work. So yeah, that's, that is the other origin point of the book, which I began working on in 2008, right as the credit crisis um, began or when it came to public attention. Um, when I moved to Los Angeles in 2011, the, the region was still experiencing the after effects of this, which we could paraphrase in a couple of different ways. Um, as banks had made a lot of money off of providing home mortgages, to buyers with little uh, outstanding uh, financial resources. Um, they also began developing a series of financial products that would capitalize on those low uh, mortgage investments by adjusting the rate of interest that they would have to pay off over time without necessarily educating or disclosing to consumers that this was the plan. Um, in 2008 and after, um, there was a huge um, uh, crisis in housing as those underqualified borrowers began to default on their homes, which then became foreclosed and repossessed by banks, causing a huge amount of internal displacement of people. Um, one of the factors in the current homelessness crisis in LA and elsewhere, but also a factor in um, the growth, the stalled growth of um, exurban suburbs, uh, especially those in the Antelope Valley like Victorville and Palmdale. I became interested um, in this in the guise of um, one person, uh, which is also kind of a matter of temporal uh, just luck. Um, in 2008, the Museum of Contemporary Art, which is uh, downtown Los Angeles, which was established in 1979, went through its own financial crisis. Its endowment had been mismanaged. It suffered, of course, during the financial collapse of the late 2000s. And around 2010, um, it was publicized that Eli Broad, who is a big, was a big philanthropist in LA, would provide uh, up to $30 million to bail out this cultural institution. And I thought that was kind of funny that at the same time, individual homeowners, especially those at the lower economic rung and major cultural institutions, which tends to serve the higher economic and cultural ladder, were experiencing these same crunches. Um, as I looked into it more, I found that Broad himself made all of his money in building out the suburbs, providing starter homes, building cheap starter homes for people. He um, is, in a sense, directly responsible for the growth of those communities that people were being pushed out of at the time. Um, so I looked at those two things in concert and began to think about the ethics both that institutions have to communities um, in terms of access, but also education, and in terms of the ways in which cities owe themselves a certain kind of transparency in how cultural education is supported and disseminated and to whom. Um, we now sort of in 2021 see that there are similar points of upheaval in a lot of different cultural institutions in LA. Um, MOCA has sort of gone through a revolving cast of directors. They've been in financial trouble across the street. Broad wound up building his own museum that directly competes with it. 
Earlier in the 2000s, Broad had also offered to fund uh, a new LACMA building and complex over in Mid Wilshire and backed out of that. Um, LACMA is involved in a big expansion campaign um, whose design is sort of critically panned um, and whose function, this increased, increased uh, floor space, is sort of unknown how that'll play out in terms of the art that goes in there and its curatorial programming. But we see parallels in, in one sense of the expansion and contraction of the cultural sector and how it directly correlates to the expansion and contraction and growth of inequity in the economic sector for everyday people. Um, and certainly in my work as a, an urban historian, but also just as a person, that's really important um, because we need to be able to have equitable and accessible cities for people to come see. And artists need that too. Maybe one question to close us out uh, would be, and so, you know, certainly your book is, as you've described it, so timely in light of both the great transformation taking place within LA's cultural institution um, institutions, as well as um, the um, increase in um, uh, in the, cri the, the crisis of the unhoused, um, of gentrification. Uh, what is the responsibility of the cultural sector, you know, both museums as well as artists? Uh, in addressing, um, amending, or let's say repairing, um, you know, some of these concerns. The book ends by talking about the way in which um, the market speculation, especially on blue chip art, has fueled directly and indirectly new forms of wealth inequality right. in cities, and also the ways in which arts-oriented urban development often have um, the predictable but essentially counterintuitive effect of making uh, cultural centers less accessible, more expensive and more catered to um, a different clientele than would normally be um, the audience for uh, those areas. So artists getting pushed out into other areas and things like that. I talk about this in further research, um, most notably in an article I wrote about the Los Angeles artist, uh, Susan Sultan and her travels throughout uh, downtown LA as a building owner, an artist, and as a performance artist, curious and interested in gathering people to witness um, sort of banal sites of change, like the closure in one instance of the Sixth Street Bridge um, spanning downtown LA and the flats of Boyle Heights, which had become a flashpoint for art-based gentrification in the 2010s. Mm -hmm. That work was called A Sublime Madness in the Soul and consisted of an opera that was performed on the outside of an artist studio building that was slated to be demolished in order to redo the Sixth Street Bridge to bring more capital investment to Boyle Heights and essentially fuel gentrification. Um, one of the other things that I think is relevant and important when we think about the um, responsibility of the cultural sector to serve the city um, is that um, the cultural sector, especially the art sector, um, has a reputation of being funded by single people, these you know, big philanthropists that come in and generously say, here's $30 million. If you renovate this museum and you redo the curatorial ranks in my image, um, which is what Broad did at MOCA, you will be financially viable. 
Um, that's not actually the reality of how cultural funding happens in Los Angeles and elsewhere. There are a plethora of sources of income, not only from exceptionally wealthy individuals, but also from small donors um, and um, public funds. The journalist Carolina Miranda wrote in a June LA Times op-ed that this myth that LA has and sort of takes to heart, that there's a lack of funding for arts, um, as well as that it requires a single crusader to come in and save things, needs to be dismantled. And she talks about how for as many Broad Museums or Lucas Museums of Narrative Arts, there are Vincent Price Art Museums, California African, Amer African American Art Museums, um, and even LACMA, which she notes uh, gets 25% of its funding from municipal tax revenue. She argues that what LA needs is cultural and economic policy that enriches public institutions with a truly diverse and service-oriented mission. And this could be accomplished through small tax policies. It could be accomplished through thorough and thoughtful hiring practices in curatorial programming and engagement departments. Um, but it should not be accomplished through the furthering of enormous accumulation of private wealth that can then be funneled into private charity. Uh, cities deserve more transparency and more energy in how their civic institutions, including museums, are supported and enriched. Um, and until we have a more just and equitable uh, system of public funding and input for the ways in which these institutions, which are now used to position LA as a cultural capital, are run, we, we won't have an accessible city. We won't be the kind of place that produces exciting new art by different and diverse people from different and diverse approaches. Instead, what will happen if we stick with this old model is that we will continue to perpetuate um, an unequal system where a very small group of artists are lucky enough to be supported by the same small group of funders to create one kind of work that appeals to those funders' market tastes. And um, that's you know, increasingly unacceptable as we move through the early 2020s. In many ways, I can think of no better way to end uh, than on that note. Um, Susie, thank you so much for your generosity, uh, your brilliance, and certainly you know, the urgency of this work, I hope is um, uh, something that um, many readers will pick up um, and take forward. Well, you are one of the people I write for, Cole. So thank you so much for your kind words. I'm really, I'm really glad that we were able to have this conversation and I look forward to many more. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you both so much. We feel very lucky at Skylight to, to have you here today with us and appreciate you sharing your work with us, Susanna. Um, once again, today's guests were Susanna Phillips-Newbury and Cole Akers discussing the speculative city, art, real estate, and the making of global Los Angeles. You can order your copy at skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks to you both. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.